0: tell you that right now the investigation is ongoing. These are professional investigators. Uh, There is a debris field there. Uh, There's other forms of data that are going to be available that that come from various technical means. Uh, And I suspect very shortly we will have very confirmed data as to what the point of origin is, point of impact. Uh, what the what the angle of the the, the uh, weapon system was, the uh, the flight trajectory, all of the details are going to be known in due time. But it's pretty early actually in the investigation, so uh, we'll know that, and the secretary will uh, know that, um, President Biden will know that, and we'll all get informed here shortly by the investigators.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Downlink a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. That was Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Mark Milley on Wednesday speaking to reporters from the Pentagon. He was reiterating what other Western political leaders had already said the day before, that the missile that slammed into a farming village in Poland, which killed two men on Tuesday, That the missile most likely came from Ukraine, and it's pretty well understood that Ukraine was firing off a lot of missiles to intercept the roughly 100 cruise missiles and drones Russia had fired off at Ukraine. The general said there was a debris field, and that other forms of data were available that come from various technical means. So here's the problem. Russia uses Russian-made missiles. Ukraine uses Russian-made missiles. And while I'm no expert, I think it's safe to assume that searching through a debris field takes a lot more time, like days, than the hours or perhaps even minutes it took to reach the conclusion that the missile that landed in Poland was a Ukrainian air defense missile. This preliminary conclusion also allowed all sides to step back a minute and pause, to think before taking more serious action. The general doesn't say this, but it's kind of obvious that the NATO nations based their political decision to not react on those other forms of data that come from various technical means. He was talking about space-based assets. To dig into how this works, we've got Jim Townsend, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO, and Coyote Smith, who has been a space operator as well as an Air Force missileer. And after Jim and Coyote, do stick around. Russia has put sanctions on leaders of the commercial space sector. We've got retired Brigadier General Bruce McClintock to explain. Now, here's our conversation with Jim and Coyote. Hi, Jim Coyote. Thank you both for joining me on The Downlink.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Laura, it's wonderful to see you again.
1: Jim, you are a legend among those of us who have worked in NATO and European defense policy. In fact, later in this podcast, I'm speaking with one of your former staffers, and that's retired Brigadier General Bruce McClintock. But I fear that this space-focused audience needs an introduction. So, Jim, take a moment and introduce yourself.
2: Well, I'm Jim Townsend and Bruce McClintock wasn't a staffer of mine, but he was a great colleague of mine, still is, and I admire him greatly. So uh, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO for eight years under uh, President Obama, but but more than that, I spent about 30 some odd years in the Pentagon working NATO in Europe uh, as a civil servant. So I've spent a lot of time in this neck of the woods and um, And I've got a lot of gray hair to show for it.
1: (laughs) You too. Um, And Coyote, you are no stranger to the downlink audience. But for those who are new, please tell us a little bit about you.
0: Oh, thanks, Laura. Yeah, I'm Coyote Smith. I'm an associate professor of strategic space studies in the Department of Space Power at Air Command and Staff College, at uh, your Air Command, at your Air University at Maxwell Air Force Base in beautiful Montgomery, Alabama. Um, I have a 30-year career in the Air Force. Started out as a uh, flying, and then I went over to missiles and transferred over to space. I'm a space weapons officer and a graduate of the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. And
2: can I jump in right now to say that I was at the Air Force Academy doing some lectures uh, for some of their classes last week, and I have never been so impressed uh, with uh, cadets in my life. Smart. They know space. They know a lot about things that go through the air. uh, And there's a lot of space work they're doing there. Very impressed with that uh, Air Force Academy.
0: Jim, don't say that. It'll go to their heads. I know. I
2: know. But, you know, sometimes they need to hear it.
1: It's very cute. But Jim, aren't you in Berlin now? And in fact, when the missiles hit Eastern Poland on Tuesday, you were in Brussels, which is the city where the European Union and NATO have their headquarters. That must have been, how should I say, well, focused everybody's attention. What were you doing there? And what was the mood?
2: Well, I was at a NATO meeting there. It was a meeting of the um, so-called senior communicators, those both at NATO and in, the, in civil society that talk about NATO and uh, that you know teach uh, about things that have NATO in it. And so I was there at a reception and uh, nothing happened in terms of people having to leave the reception early and, and this type of thing. I didn't hear cell phones going off, but about uh, 30 minutes after returning to my hotel, actually walking into the hotel, uh, after that reception, my phone went off and did not stop going off all night long. I got maybe an hour's worth of sleep, as uh, for me, at least, uh, getting a lot of calls from newspapers and TV and, and radio, particularly from around the world, uh, very anxious to hear what's happening and uh, to get the views. So it was quite a quite a test, not just of myself, uh, but also of NATO and Poland and the U.S., and I think we passed that test, but it was a very anxious Couple of hours there.
1: Explain to me what you mean by test. I mean, what was the test in your mind? Well,
2: the test was the alliance itself, making sure that there wasn't any precipitous uh, actions taken that they were going to do what they always do. Uh, but this was a, um, a real-world test uh, too. That uh, you, they don't make decisions just uh, based on the moment. They gather data. They try to figure out uh, the, the root cause of something, uh, they are criticized for going slow a lot of times, but sometimes going slow is what you need to do. Uh, and that's what NATO did. I think the U.S. did the same thing early in the crisis, uh, Poland, uh, Ukraine, some other, uh, countries very quickly were pointing fingers and describing what had happened. Uh, NATO didn't do that. NATO waited until, uh, experts could get on the scene, including the U.S. And, uh, together uh, we we all uh, sat down as an alliance at 10 o'clock the next morning at a meeting of the North Atlantic Council and uh, compared notes and and determined that in fact what had happened was not something launched from Russia this was something that was uh, an, an accident but it was an accident that we knew uh could very well happen there could be spillover from this war uh just like there is spillover from every war and it's something that um, tested the not just the decision-making ability and the and and whether NATO can stay calm, but also it, it tested how does one go about dealing with spillover? Uh, and I think that NATO did a very good job. They passed the test. The U.S. passed the test. I think Poland might get a little bit of remedial work in, but um, I think on the whole, uh, you know, things came out the way they needed to be.
1: You know, after the news broke. I mean, there was a lot of talk of invoking NATO Article 4. And if we can all remember, President Joe Biden did pledge that not one inch of NATO's territory would go uncontested. Yet here we are now, and under the circumstances, which is Russia raining missiles down on a nation next door to Poland, a NATO nation, and I caution you that this may seem like, well, a stupid question, but why not ask for an Article 4? And, and you know, two people were killed on Polish soil because essentially of a Russian aggression, whether the missile was fired from Ukraine or not. I mean, what is Article 4 and why why didn't we go down that road? Well, Article
2: 4 and Article 5 are the two articles you hear most about. And the both of those are articles uh, within the North Atlantic Treaty, which was signed in 1949 that started NATO. Um, Article 5 is the one you hear about most, it's only been invoked once, and that was uh, when the U.S. was attacked on 9-11, uh, NATO invoked Article 5, which says that um, uh, a, an, an ally has been attacked and therefore uh, the rest of the alliance has agreed to come in and to protect that uh, nation, to respond to what happened to that nation, to that ally, in, in a way of its choosing. Uh, and so what NATO did on this case uh, with uh, the United States was they sent AWACS to the U.S. and helped us to make sure that we could keep our skies safe in the, in the week that followed 9-11. Uh, so that's Article 5, and, uh, and that's Article the one for, a bit all, different. All for one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and so Article 4, though, Article 4 is important, and you don't hear so much about that. But if a nation feels like it's under pressure... If it feels an attack is imminent or an attack has happened, it can it can it can go to the section to get permission to have an emergency meeting of the NAC. Uh, and if the section agrees, um, then Article four is invoked and the NATO alliance will meet uh, an emergency session to hear from that ally. Uh, and so it's it's not a routine meeting. Uh, it's something that when they talk about invoking Article five, it means that. Um, an ally is asking the alliance to come together in an, in an extraordinary meeting. So the very act of of invoking Article Four, of a nation coming in and saying something really bad has happened, and we need to know, I, 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 the nation need to know if the alliance can come to my aid, i.e., going to Article Five, um, that sets in train, you know, something very important. So Article Four, the the right to come and consult with the alliance, um, isn't something you undertake lightly because there's expectations that There could be actions afterwards. And um, uh, in the case of Poland and the missile, Poland was going to invoke Article 4. It had had a a letter written, uh, and I think they pulled it right before the NAC met the next day. And they pulled it because it was increasingly obvious to nations and to experts that what had happened was an accident. It wasn't um, a missile fired by Russia with intent uh, to harm Poland, to begin a war with NATO, et cetera. This was something that um, came from another cause, so uh, they still wanted to meet. Uh, and on Wednesdays is when NATO usually has a NAC meeting, uh, and so they said, "Well, look, pull the Article Four request. We're going to meet at ten a.m. anyway. Let's go ahead and meet, and let's talk about what happened." And that's in fact what they did. So you don't have the drama of an Article Four, and the and, and the, the
1: expectation. The,
2: Right, the expectation of Morocco 5. So they pulled that, they reduced the drama, but they still had a very important discussion uh, and an important conclusion that in fact, it was an accident.
1: You know, the NATO Secretary General, Jen Soldenberg is not there in Poland and neither are any of the NATO permanent representatives what are they what are they using to base your conclusion that this missile was actually a ukraine fired air defense missile which contradicts what ukraine's president vladimir zelensky has repeatedly stated and this is important because ironically Ukraine uses russian made missiles to shoot down russian fired russian made missiles so whatever they find in poland chances are it's russian made so what would be the basis of this preliminary analysis
2: well i don't know
1: uh you know i'm sure what they do is uh, they classify nato
2: classifies everything it seems uh, and so does the us by the way uh so i i haven't read w- what all the uh, evidence was it might very well be out there. I just haven't seen it. But you're right about the uh, the surface air missile being um, a, a rush of Russian origin. You know, it was part of uh, what Ukraine inherited. Uh, I'm sure when they left uh, the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union uh, went away. So, uh, so it was uh, of of a Russian make. I would I would guess, and I'm sure others listening might, uh, Coyote. You might have something. Uh, to add to this, but um, you know, there's for me, and this goes to what your show is all about, um, is is that you know, there are radar tracks that track things like missiles, and I am sure there were a lot of radars both in Poland and as well as in Ukraine where that uh, SAM, as it's called, was probably picked up on a radar, as well as the uh, the missile that it was trying to knock down, and uh, and so I am sure through those radar tracks they could determine the origins of that of the missile of both missiles um and uh and then potentially what happened uh and again i i i'd heard that about an hour or two after the event there was a rumor going around that um it was in fact a ukrainian sam that had kind of gone, gone off uh or sam debris you know so it's not like this is something that they that was brand new. It had been out there as one of the uh, potential uh, causes of this whole thing. So what the, I I hope at some point we'll get to hear what all of the evidence was that the investigators came up with. But I think for sure, radar tracks uh, and some space-based, I'm sure, sensors uh, probably very early on gave a lot of folks the idea of what actually happened.
1: I I mean, there is this fog of war issue there. I mean, Russia has reported on Tuesday to have launched 90 KH-101 missiles and caliber cruise missiles and 11 drones. And we know that Ukraine shot many of them down, which means Ukraine sent up at least that many missiles to intercept, you know, and all of this is happening at hypersonic speeds. Are we really that good at acquiring and tracking all of that and fusing the data together into something useful, Um, you know, Coyote? this is one you should take on?
0: Well, the answer to that is yes. And in fact, now it's it's relatively easy. Uh, within seconds of the event that took place on the 15th, space was already collecting the data uh, through its databases and recorded databases of, of collecting different types and kinds of missiles launching. They knew exactly what this was. They knew where it came from. They knew where it was likely going. They would see the intercepts that would take place, and they would also see the deflections and the break-aparts that would take place as a result. I want to go back 30 years ago to give you an example of this. Back during Operation Desert Storm, uh, whenever the Iraqis launched a Scud missile, once again, within seconds, we detected it, and we were able to determine exactly where that uh, Scud missile was likely to go. And we were able to route that within minutes to forces in the Ford Theater for them to react and respond to it. Modern air defense batteries have uh, direct satellite ties. So when that data is collected off of those satellites, within those first few seconds, it's already routed down to air defense systems. Uh, We use space to integrate not only the radars uh, on the surface of the Earth, but also in concert with uh, GPS that gives us exceptionally accurate timing of when events take place and uh, the positioning accuracy that it also provides, we're able to determine with great accuracy and great speed what goes on in the infrared spectrum. The satellites that we had 30 years ago are a pale shadow compared to what we have and what we can do today. One just simply needs to take into account Moore's law that the technology of computing power multiplies by a factor every 18 months. And you can take from 30 years ago and multiply that forward and see where we are likely today. I imagine not having any special information on this, but I imagine that within seconds, the events of the 15th of November were accurately collected and categorized and within minutes was informed to President Biden. And then he had the determination of actually sharing that with first our uh, the five eyes inside our alliances, the NATO alliance and others.
2: No, I, I agree. In, in fact, I was going to raise the desert storm as well to also make the point that not only have our satellites gotten better, but the missile defense systems themselves have gotten better. And what was interesting about the desert storm example is that's when the world was first introduced to the Patriot missile system. And, uh, and it performed uh, for all eyes watching on TV, just like it was knocking these things out of the sky. Uh, and Raytheon didn't say that they weren't, <laughs> but I think we learned later that the missiles were not performing quite the way that they that, that they were advertised. But they came close enough; uh, they they were able to disrupt a lot of these scuds that were going up. But since those days, um, Raytheon has worked on the Patriot missile system to the point where now uh, they do uh, are very accurate, just the way Kaido was describing them. Uh, so the, if you marry up that those space-based systems. With uh, the the ground based uh, missile defense systems, something like Patriot, you've got a really good uh, not just good air defense, but you've got a good uh, eyes on the on the on the in the air and on the ground, and what's moving around uh, in the air and how to knock them down. And um, I agree with, with Coyote. I think very early, the U.S. Uh, at least in the space community and in the Air Force, I think they had a very good idea of what happened. And that's where the rub comes in a lot of ways, because that data then, that information has to get transmitted into the political sphere, um, to the SecDef and to uh, the White House, and it becomes political. (laughs) And, you know, and so they then have to decide, uh, you know, do we we go out in the middle of this political maelstrom that was happening uh, with all kinds of fingers being pointed, et cetera, on the one hand, you do want to get the accurate information out there to calm everybody down and to uh, take the air out of a ballooning uh, potentially dangerous situation. But at the same time, um, you got to take into account the SecGen and NATO and, and who's got the lead on this, uh, the polls as well. And I think I think Coyote, as I remember the just the TikTok, as they say, of, of the events. Pretty quickly, the polls began to walk back some of what they were saying about the Russians. And my guess is, if anything, the U.S. got to Poland, behind, you know, back, you know, very quietly and said, look, we, we don't what we have does not support that. It's coming out of Russia aimed at you guys with intent. Uh, this is something else. Um, just telling you, you know, so you might want to start walking things back in a, such a way that they don't embarrass themselves, that they've got to kind of ease themselves back into a place you know, walk themselves um, back from the edge. Uh, and um, and that's why it's great for NATO in this case not to be jumping to conclusions. Because I think it was Colin Powell that said, where's the effect of, don't believe the first uh, battle damage reports that come in. They're usually not right. Uh, and uh, you got to wait to get clarification. And I think um, NATO did well uh, to abide by that. Because as, again, as Coyote said, I think Certainly in the U.S. Air Force, uh, UCOM world, and then quickly into OSD, into SECDEF, they uh, had a good idea what happened. But how do, you, how do you present this news to the political side, not just in the U.S., but in Warsaw and NATO? How do you present this in such a way that uh, you can help a nation to walk back without embarrassing them?
0: Oh, Jim, I'd like to correct something there. It was the Space Force, not the Air Force that had this information. I agree. You're absolutely yeah. right. I'm
2: still getting used to that. No. You know, I met my first Space Force uh, guardian uh, when I was at the Air Force Academy, and I uh, I guess I should have given him a silver dollar or at least a coin or something to to mark the event. But uh, yes, absolutely the Space Force.
0: Yeah. You know, I'd like to just add to something that you're talking about. Um, these types of events happen all the time. Israel Uh, whenever they have to put up their missile defenses, uh, they're keenly aware that what goes up must come down. And oftentimes they'll do an intercept, but sometimes they'll just knock the warhead off an incoming missile, and that warhead might fall someplace that causes damage. Or if their air defense missile misses the target, or if the the missile they're targeting goes past them, that missile may go in the wrong direction and accidentally come down someplace and cause deaths. And I believe that's what actually happened in in Poland. I'd like to compliment the world leaders on two things. First of all, as Jim pointed out, they recognize early reports are usually wrong and you've got to get corroborative data. There was no need to speed to a bad decision or anything hastily. And they recognized that Uh, I believe we've got a better estimation of the data. We know what the facts are with a better sense of truth at this point. And so we're able to step forward. But this is the type of stuff that we typically see whenever we have um, missile and anti-missile engagements.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Just to just to jump in on that, uh, you know, as we were putting together the uh, NATO missile defense, you know, we have this uh, system that was uh, created over the past few years. Uh, that issue of debris was a very big issue among the allies. Uh, what happens um, if you've intercepted a? Uh, in this case, it'd be from Iran. That's what the Missile defense system is right now oriented towards if you knock down an Iranian missile and there's debris scattered across a broad area, you know, who's liable for this? Who's going to pay for this? Where could that debris, you know, go? So debris is is a big issue here. And uh, and I'm sure for Israel, particularly given the this compact geographic area and the settlements and this type of thing, that's a big thing there. And as, as I remember too, Coyote, during the Kosovo Air Kosovo Air campaign, there was some of this. As well, uh, some errant uh, missiles um, went into I think Romania it might have been, and uh, this type of thing. And uh, it was um, something that uh, we were having to get used to, uh, unused as we were at that time, and and even today, unused to uh, a war on this scale, particularly with Ukraine, a war at this scale. These kinds of things happen, uh, and they and they're not necessarily cause uh, for the chaos that we had in the opening hours of the crisis a few days ago.
0: That's right, Jim. And, you know, one of the things that we're putting, we're trying to develop, we may have already, I'm actually not inside this loop, but we typically have weapons that time out if they don't impact their weapon by the planned reasonable time plus a minor gap to ensure that they hit the target. If they don't hit the target, they will go inert so that they don't fall in an armed manner and that's been a critical chase that we've been pursuing now for a number of years back during the second world war just to give you another example of this we sent out hundreds of bombers and because of bad weather and because it was just hard uh our bombers missed the target by by i guess several miles but the german anti-aircraft artillery uh went up and it came down and it destroyed the target for us and uh it wasn't until later in the war that we realized that we'd actually missed the target and the Germans just accidentally had destroyed the target for us. Yeah.
2: In fact, right outside my hotel is a uh, the famous Flak tower uh that is that looms over uh, East oh. Berlin. So I just I visited that today and in fact I was thinking about that very thing.
0: Yeah. It's really remarkable. You know, I also think Occam's razor test uh Russia clearly has no incentive to trigger A NATO response any greater than what they have already. I do understand that President Zelensky of of Ukraine uh, has consulted with his generals and they've assured him that they didn't do this. What they may have meant was they didn't do this intentionally. And I I imagine that they've got some room for some self-forgiveness on this because they were doing their best.
1: I do have to wrap this up, guys. I have one last question for you, Jim and Coyote. Please jump in at will. And maybe I'm just thinking out loud here, but if our current space-based missile tracking architecture was somehow disabled, and we know that China and Russia have tested anti-satellite systems to do just that, they probably have on-orbit systems that we just don't really know or understand... You know, how would cooler heads prevail in a situation like this? I mean, if we don't have that, how do we even make decisions? You know, cooler heads prevailed this week. But in the future, if we don't have this, what do we do?
2: Well, I tell you, uh, and I would love to hear what Kai says about this. That has bothered me for years and years and years and years. I mean, we have redundancies. You know i I would say that in a lot of ways, for some systems, at least, we've got redundant systems that uh, or redundant space systems that can take over or we can we can switch to another method and other sensors to help us understand what is happening and also help to guide our own response and our own missiles. I mean, but just the the bottom line here is, whether it's our eyes in space, whether it is our ability to guide our munitions coming from, you know, targeting from using space-based uh, assa- assets. If if our eyes are put out early in a conflict, um, that's certainly an Article 5 in terms of NATO, but for the United States, should that happen, I, uh, we, we depend on it so, for so much, whether it's GPS or, whether it is a lot of what we're talking about here, you know, knowing when a missile has been launched or, or whatever else might be being able to discern the
1: intent, us. right? Yeah, I mean, well, that's
2: I'm, part well, of it. Dis- well, discerning the intent is both coming from what we're seeing in, from the technology in terms of where it's going. Uh, you know, they're all the kinds of data you get from a launch, but the intent also has to be something that we can only guess at, uh, when that data is handed to a decision maker, that decision maker has to then say, okay, I see what the data seems to be saying. Is this really happening here? Is this, is this intent to attack or is this an accident? I mean, that's, the, you know, that's really the key point in, in this particular incident mm-hmm. that you're talking about, and that is uh, understanding the intent. You're presented with data. What does the data mean? Does this mean an attack or does it not? Does this require response or does it not? And you don't have a lot of time to make that call, yeah. uh, and so um, uh, that's th- that's that's a whole other uh, th- whole another episode of the downlink. I think is is that uh, that uh, interface between the data coming in and a decision maker trying to figure out what is he or she going to recommend to the president of the United States. I mean, that's always been the problem with nuclear weapons ever since uh, the fifties, as we began to deal with, uh, you know, whether it's ICBMs or strategic bombing or whatever it might be, is seeing the data and then trying to figure out what does it mean, i.e. what's the intent here? And when you have your eyes poked out, as we were talking about here, your sensors have been attacked, they've been jammed, you're offline, and you don't get a lot of data. You get a little bit here and a little bit there. It's even harder to try to figure out, so what's
0: going on? Yeah, on my side of the house, uh, it's different because we've got to produce the information and and validate it and, and route it as quickly as we possibly can with assurances that what we're seeing is valid and that it's not a matter of our sensors being spoofed. Fortunately, we exercise a doctrine of multiple phenomenologies. We not only have uh, IR satellites, but we have ground-based radars. I suspect that in this case of the missile landing in Poland, the ground-based radars would be sufficient to souse this out, and that gives me some some great comfort. However, I go to bed at night worrying about the fact that our satellites sit up there undefended. Being a professor here at a school that teaches space, space warfare, and other related topics, Our students are perplexed by the fact that we have to continue to provide support to the warfighter, even though we're just increasing the number of satellites on orbit with no active defense. Uh, We are willing to accept the losses in space, um, and we hope that with increased numbers of satellites on orbit that we will fail slowly enough for our forces to be able to turn things around. The unfortunate side is that for every satellite we're fielding, we're watching literally dozens of counter space weapons being produced by our chief adversaries in the world. Um, this does not give us a good night's sleep.
2: I agree, uh, Coyote, I'm with you. I that I bet- I worry about that night, maybe not every night, but just about every night. And trying to figure out if everything did go down that space-based, uh, what's our land-based uh, uh, backup system uh, that we can use? And I, I have a my, I always illustrate this talking about Marines uh, that I heard on basic training years ago uh, out at Quantico, uh, and they were doing land navigation and they were um, having to use maps and a compass. Uh, and but they got out there in the woods and they took out their GPS. Uh, and they, they did it with the GPS and then they said, well, you know, guys, you might not have GPS, Get back out there with your compass and make it work. So that's my fear is what's the compass that we have, uh, that's going to be the backup in case our space-based systems go down. So I I'm with you on this and I'm not so sure there's a great answer out there. I just hope someone's working on it.
0: Well, Jim, you know, one of the things that I teach my students as a backup to GPS, is uh, I carry all of our soldiers carry little sewing kits. I tell them to carry a magnet because uh, it, when GPS goes down, they're going to have to take that magnet and a pin out and rub that magnet across that pin <laughs> and set it down into a bucket of water for it to turn north.
2: Well, I did. I'll try that myself because if I'm in my car and GPS goes down, I'll be doing the same thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's going to be kind of hard for our fire control systems on our advanced weapons to do their very accurate delivery, uh, looking into a pail of water at a needle.
2: Well, uh, you, you're absolutely right. And, I, and you know what? Our adversaries know that, too. And that's why you know uh, if there's a conflict that's going to happen, it's not going to start with a missile going into a Polish farm and blowing up a tractor. It's going to be missiles going up there, taking out a hell of a lot of satellites up there. Uh, so that our response is going to be uh, petering out as guys are filling pails with water and getting their needles out.
0: Wow, the only thing we're missing here is a beer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is Friday, anyway, gentlemen. Thank you, Jim Coyote. Thank you both so much for making the time.
2: Thank you, Laura. This has been this has been great.
1: Laura, you do been a great, great public
0: service. You sure do. And, and Jim, it's great meeting you. And if you get to Montgomery, please stop by for that beer.
2: That's a deal. I'll I'll buy the first round.
0: Great.
1: Now, we're going to talk about sanctions, specifically Russian sanctions. While it's pretty well known that after Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the U.S., Europe, and more broadly, Western governments used sanctions to target Russia's military industrial base, as well as specific individuals who bear responsibility for starting and sustaining this invasion. In fact, this week, the U.S. State Department announced new sanctions against Russia's procurement networks in Europe and Asia, and separately, Iranian entities that manufacture and deliver UAVs, or drones, to Russia. It's also no surprise that Russia has its own sanctions list, and the Russian foreign ministry recently added 200 more names to their American list. What caught my eye was that more than 10% of the names on this latest list are commercial space sector leaders. I spoke with retired Air Force Brigadier General Bruce McClintock. He's a former U.S. defense attaché to Russia and now works on space policy at the RAND Corporation. Here's our conversation. Hi, Bruce. It's great to have you back on the podcast.
3: Hey, Laura, it's great to be back. It's been too long, frankly. It's great to hear from you again.
1: Bruce, you've been on the downlink a couple of times already, but for those who are new listeners, Take a sec and introduce yourself.
3: So sure. Yeah. Greetings from uh, Colorado, by the way. Uh, So Bruce McClintock, I'm a retired Brigadier General. I served for about 30 years in the United States Air Force, doing a variety of assignments that included uh, mostly time flying as a pilot, uh, A-10s and other platforms uh, as a test pilot, uh, but also a lot of time doing strategy and policy work and uh, some space-related work, space uh, power-related work. My one crazy Ivan in my career, I call it, uh, was my two-year tour as the defense attache in Russia for the United States from 2014 to 2016. I transitioned out of the military in late 2016 after coming back from Moscow and started working for RAND Corporation, where I am now a senior policy researcher. And I also have the privilege of leading uh, what we call the RAND Space Enterprise Initiative, which is responsible for better connecting all of RAND's space-related research and researchers internally and externally with all of the important stakeholders.
1: You know, I've asked, and you have so generously agreed to come back on the podcast, because this latest round of Russian sanctions being placed on American individuals seems to have quite a number of folks from the space sector. But before we get into this latest list of 200 names, and just so everyone knows, Russia has now placed sanctions on a total of 1,271 American citizens. But what does that even mean to have Russian sanctions placed on you?
3: So most commonly when the Russians are quote unquote sanctioning an individual, what they're actually doing is, uh, in the case of individuals, they're placing them on what Russia calls stop lists, which prevents the individual uh, and their family members as well, typically, from actually entering Russia. So it's it's really just a prevention from travel into uh, any Russian territories. So it's not like an economic sanction or anything like that, but it's a blacklist that prevents you from getting uh, access to Russian territory.
1: You know, it's not terribly surprising that General Jay Raymond, the recently retired Space Force CSO, and the new CSO, General Chan Saltzman of the Space Force, you know, they made the newest list. But what is different are the names of men and women working in the commercial space sector? Now, read the tea leaves. What does that even mean?
3: So first of all, you're right. There's quite a large number of uh, space sector, aerospace sector broadly uh, related industries on this list. It's not the first time that there have been companies uh, and company leaders uh, on uh, past Russia stop lists or sanctioned lists. Uh, but there are quite a large percentage, uh, I think, uh, based on what you were saying, there's about 10% of this list actually comes from the aerospace sector. So that, that's a large percentage. I'm just going to speculate, but I'll, let's call it informed speculation. I think there's a couple of reasons for this on this specific list. Uh, first of all, I'd say broadly, it demonstrates a Russian awareness of the West's, and in this case, the United States' dependence on space as an aspect of war fighting. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the U.S. is talking about space a lot more with the creation of a space command and a space force, which are two different things, as we have talked about before. So they recognize that we have a dependence on space. It's not new that they that they were aware of that, but they they sense it and they see it as something that they need to keep addressing. I think more recently and more topically related to this latest round of individual sanctions is the role that space has played in the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, it's It was not a surprise at all to me to see uh, names from uh, Maxar on the list. Uh, they're one of the big names that most people talk about when we talk about how space has had an impact on what's going on in Ukraine, because they were the ones, one of the first companies to openly, very publicly, and repeatedly share uh, imagery of what Russia was doing in the early days of the conflict in Ukraine. And that's become a a distant story going all the way back to February timeframe now, but it's important. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, an organization like Maxar is on that list. There's other companies on there that uh, are directly tied to space activities within the United States Space Force or the Office of Secretary of Defense writ large. So it's, again, not a surprise to me if they're sussing out these public documents and finding these contracts that these companies have with the United States. That they're they're going to call these companies out uh, as as an indication of the fact that there's potentially some consequence for uh, working with the United States in national security matters. Uh, so that that's my take on it. Uh, that's not based on any kind of insider information. It's just again my uh, informed assessment. Yeah, you
1: know, I actually reached out to a number of the companies, like L3 Harris and Maxar. And I even reached out to the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics for comment, and they're all mum on the subject. Do these folks in the commercial space sector that are on this list have anything actually to worry about?
3: You know, I, I'm not speaking on behalf of any of those companies, right? And so they're, they obviously have their reasons for uh, remaining silent on this subject. I mean, I think it's just uh, probably just good business analysis that there's nothing to be gained from commenting about uh, these kind of political sanctions. Uh, They've already made their business decisions about who they're going to pursue contracts with, and going beyond that doesn't really uh, do them any good is probably how I would look at it if if I were advising the companies, which I'm not. I guess the one exception to that would be, for me, would be for Maxar. I mean, I would have expected that Maxar would have publicly commented in response to this, because of their visible role in uh, the conflict in Ukraine. And, you know, there's other companies like that that I didn't see on this list, surprisingly. So Viasat, for instance, and also uh, Starlink are two companies that I, uh, the Starlink Constellation from SpaceX are companies that I would have expected to have some uh, presence on this list because they're the other uh, commercial entities that are regularly talked about that have had significant impact on, the way the conflict has played out in Ukraine. In one case, they're a victim, in the case of Viasat, because Russia actually hacked them, uh, some of their ground terminals. Uh, Again, first day of the conflict. Uh, And uh, Starlink, because they're actually providing uh, material support to the Ukrainians. Uh, And that's been very much in the public eye. And the Russians have actually commented on that in public recently, in UN uh, organizations, saying that commercial satellites are – quote unquote, fair game uh, when it comes to uh, military targets. Uh, And that's a topic of great debate right now, but it is something that uh, it's another channel or indication that Russians are using whatever they can to influence these kind of companies.
1: Once Russia's current war on Ukraine comes to a conclusion of some sort, What are the long-ranging implications? Are there any for Russia's space sector or perhaps even the American commercial space sector that these sanctions, you know, have an effect on?
3: So I think the the two parts of that question, the impacts on the U.S. commercial space sector, and I'll just broaden that to the international, not counting Russian space sector, I, I don't think these kind of sanctions have any impact whatsoever on the West when it comes to uh, the space activity. Uh, really, a, a more significant indicator uh, of a change in kind of the roles of space sectors was was when Russia refused to launch and, and basically just appropriated uh, satellites uh, from one web that were supposed to go up on a Russian uh, rocket months ago now. That's just a business loss. That's a write-off now for that company. And they've already moved on to, I believe it's an Indian launch provider to get uh, the next round of those satellites on, on orbit. Uh, but that more than any of these kind of sanctions has really indicated that the West and, and everybody but Russia has just moved on and realized that it's sunk costs to deal with Russia when it comes to space activities like this. So really, they've they've shot themselves in the foot, so to speak, because nobody's going to want to do business with Russia when it comes to space now after the way things have played out in Ukraine. So these sang- these kind of uh, stop uh, list kind of sanctions are really minimal in the scheme of things. Uh, but they're just one more indicator that, yeah, those aren't people we want to do business with anyway. That's that's a business take on this uh, rather than kind of an analyst take, which is a different pool of some of the stop list uh, personnel.
1: Bruce, thank you so much for your time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's good to see you again.
1: That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the down link on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.